Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, we advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On November 24th, 1947, Edward Dimitrik and the Hollywood Ten held their breath as they waited for the U.S. House of Representatives to vote. A month ago, the Ten had refused to deny their communist allegiance. Now, they sat in silence as the House determined their punishment. Edward wondered what the punishment would be. Fines, jail time, the absolute destruction of their reputations. They would be entirely blacklisted in Hollywood. That much he knew for sure. Edward had never really been a communist, not in spirit, his refusal to denounce the party had nothing to do with his political beliefs. To him, it was about free speech. He was a man of principles. And after the committee was through with him, that was about all he had left. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. In this show, we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. This week, we'll take a look at the Hollywood Ten, a group of screenwriters, directors, and producers who refused to admit whether they were communists to the U.S. Congress in the 1940s. As a result, Hollywood created a blacklist and laid off these 10 and hundreds of other professionals thought to be communists, destroying countless careers. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. 
The film industry may be a beacon of escapism in hard times, but it's hardly immune to socio-political realities. In fact, it sometimes faces even harder scrutiny than politicians themselves. By the early 1940s, major events like the drug crisis of the 1910s, World War I, and the Great Depression had all hit the film industry hard and forced it to change its operations. But all of these pale in comparison to the Red Scare, which dogged Hollywood throughout the 1940s and 50s, resulting in a decade-long blacklist against any Hollywood elites suspected of being communists. This discriminatory purge of typically liberal-minded filmmakers and the subsequent destruction of their careers hinged on the very real infiltration of the upper levels of the film industry by Communist Party leaders. Not everyone accused of being a communist actually belonged to the party or had any sort of insidious agenda. Refused to deny their association with communism before Congress, they sent Hollywood into a paranoid frenzy. Among the now-famous Hollywood Ten was one loose cannon who had actually left the Red Party two years before any accusations were made against him. But just one year as a Red forever changed his career, costing him his freedom, his livelihood, and the well-being of the industry he loved. Edward Dimitrik was born on September 4, 1908, in Grand Forks, British Columbia, Canada, just north of the U.S. border. His parents were Ukrainian immigrants who had fled the Austro-Hungarian Empire and its increasing exploitation of the Slavic peoples. They had every intention of eventually moving back home someday. And then World War I broke out. The Canadian government began interning all immigrants who had been citizens of Austria. That meant Edward's family. The Dimitriks fled across the U.S. border, and when Edward was 10 or 11 years old, they settled in Sherman, Los Angeles, in what is today known as West Hollywood. Edward's father was abusive, and so Edward ran away at the age of 14 to escape him. However, he didn't go very far. An older friend got him a job at a nearby film studio, the famous Players Lasky Studio. Edward was known to say he was raised on film. It's easy to see why. The film industry came to Los Angeles in the 1910s, and by the time Edward was a teen, Hollywood studios were producing dozens of pictures a year. Edward worked in the studio for the next three or four years, earning $6 a week and paying his way through high school. Not long after graduation, he got a job as a projectionist and film editor at Paramount. At age 24, Edward married his first wife, Madeline Robinson. Things were fairly routine for the next handful of years. He bought a home in Sherman Oaks and settled into married life nicely. In 1939, Edward got both his citizenship and his first real directing job. Paramount offered him a one-year contract to make B-movies. It was the realization of a dream he had been working towards since he was 14. In his memoir, Edward recalls that he truly believed film could change the world. He loved film and gave much of his time and energy to his work. But he was never particularly political in his art, even after World War II broke out in September of 1939. 
While the U.S. would remain uninvolved in the war for several years, fear of communism at home was beginning to fester. And despite being temporarily neutral, the U.S. still organized a draft. Edward sold his home in Sherman Oaks to buy an apartment building in Beverly Hills. This way, his wife and the son she just gave birth to in 1941 could live comfortably with the building generating income if and when he had to go to war. In early 1942, Edward heard that Colonel Frank Capra was putting together a Signal Corps unit with the goal of filming the war. Edward wanted in. He showed up at the temporary headquarters at the old Fox studio on Sunset and Vine to volunteer his services. Edward had some humility. Capra was a successful director himself, and Edward had no desire to upstage him. Instead, he offered his volunteer services as an editor. Edward should have been a shoe-in for the position. He was known throughout Hollywood for his exceptional editing work. However, no call ever came. In fact, he never heard from the Signal Corps again. It wasn't until years later that he would find out he'd been turned down as a security risk. He'd been labeled a premature anti-fascist by the government after his anti-Nazi spy thriller, Seven Miles from Alcatraz, wrapped in late 1941. Essentially, in what seems like an odd catch-22, anyone who came out against fascism during or after the war started was considered patriotic and morally upstanding. But anyone who spoke out against fascism before the war was under suspicion. The only organized opposition to fascist governments in Europe before the war started were communists. And in the capitalist United States, communists were just as dangerous as fascists. Edward knew none of that. In fact, at the time, he had never been politically active at all. While his experiences fleeing persecution as a child made him suspicious of fascist regimes, Edward said of himself at the time, I felt no pity for the afflicted. I had grown up in the same world, and if I could get out, so could they. Edward was a far cry from a sleeper communist revolutionary. And for now, nothing else happened. He didn't get drafted, and he didn't become part of the Signal Corps. Instead, Paramount commissioned him to begin making U.S. propaganda films. The films afforded him some clout as a director, though he largely made them out of a sense of patriotic duty. The first of these films was the 1943 RKO Radio Pictures film, Hitler's Children. This film explored the indoctrination of Nazi youth in Germany and followed an American girl and her German lover who chose to resist the Nazi regime. Hitler's Children was a runaway success. With a modest budget for the time of $100,000, it's estimated that it brought in over $7 million. Fans and critics alike expressed that Edward Dimitrich's nuanced and human handling of the complex material made the film resonate in ways other propaganda work had not. These successes propelled him from a B-movie maker to a bona fide director with artistic merit. RKO wanted more, so they assigned him the A-list picture, Tender Comrade. Edward could hardly believe it. Ginger Rogers and Dalton Trumbo were both attached. Rogers was an A-list star, and Trumbo was arguably the most sought-after screenwriter in Hollywood at the time. 
RKO was trusting him with the best. What Edward didn't know was that Trumbo was an active communist. He also had no idea that the film would eventually be used against him, the word comrade in the title being pointed to as proof of a communist agenda. But for the time, Edward was riding high. Tender Comrade was another success. His next film, Murder My Sweet, did well at the box office and became a critic favorite. It was also considered a benchmark film in the developing noir genre. The money was coming in, Edward had artistic freedom and critical acclaim, and he would have steady work coming in for decades if he could keep this up. Then, in the spring of 1944, Edward suffered his first major blow. His wife, Madeline, was separating from him with intention to divorce. Still, outside of the divorce, this was the smoothest his life had ever been. Edward was ready for the next big thing, and L.A. had changes brewing. Since the mid-1930s, European intellectuals had been fleeing their increasingly oppressive and dangerous home countries. Many of them chose to settle in Los Angeles to be around a community of artists like the ones they had left behind. A particularly famous intellectual to make this transition was Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, who worked in both prose and film, including playwright Bertolt Brecht and composer Arnold Schoenberg. These intellectuals changed the climate of Los Angeles. Up until that time, films had been seen primarily as light entertainment and ways to make money, pure escapism to combat the Great Depression in the 1930s. The new crowd was pushing questions of artistic merit, critical thinking, and politics. This crowd attracted more U.S. intellectuals, particularly New York City liberals, who were also choosing to relocate as Hollywood became the clear center of film production and its profits. All of these groups brought with them strong beliefs in Marxism, socialism, and communism, ideals that had become popular in the wake of Hitler's rise to power and the rise of fascism in Europe. These were ideas the people of Los Angeles hadn't previously been concerned with. But to Dimitrik and other Hollywood successfuls who were interested in their field's artistic merit, these new circles were alluring. Edward had always believed art could change the world, and here were the philosophical and political structures to help them do it. In the face of World War II, Edward was feeling the urge to do something more meaningful than make government-sanctioned propaganda films. However, he didn't particularly agree with Democratic or Republican Party politics. So when a co-worker approached him in the spring of 1944 about attending a different sort of political meeting, Edward figured it was worth checking out. He soon found himself in the home of a fellow director, officially registering as a member of the Communist Party. Up next, we'll take a look at how this offhand decision was the beginning of Edward's undoing. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our story. At 36 years old, Edward Dimitrik was a celebrated A-list director with some of RKO's most successful motion pictures under his belt. It was 1944, the height of World War II, and Edward was creating propaganda films for home front audiences. But he found himself wanting to get more involved with politics. So when he was invited to a Communist Party meeting, he said yes. The gathering of 20 or so people was hosted at the home of Frank Tuttle, another prominent Hollywood director and secret communist. While communism was gaining popularity in intellectual circles worldwide, it was still regarded as a radical political group in the United States, which forced its members into secrecy. There was a secretive buzz in the air that Edward found exhilarating. For instance, no one was entirely sure who at the party was already a communist and who was a prospective recruit. As the meeting began, the room hushed for a presentation by Alva Bessie. A successful screenwriter himself, Bessie could spin a story better than almost anyone. Tonight, he recounted untold stories of communist efforts during his time in the Spanish Civil War. Bessie's exaggerated tales of communists upholding egalitarian ideals appealed to these liberal filmmakers who felt they stood on the side of justice. After Bessie's rousing speech, the group handed out pamphlets, including the Communist Manifesto. To naive idealists like Edward, the group sounded like the most patriotic American organization possible. For example, the group's manifesto read, The Communist Party of the USA is a political party carrying forward the traditions of Jefferson, Payne, Jackson, and Lincoln. It upholds and defends the United States Constitution through a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Its abolition of all exploitation of man by man, nation by nation, and race by race, striving toward a world without oppression and war, a world of brotherhood of man. There was no mention of revolution, violence, or terrorism, just a commitment to the U.S. Constitution and the protection of equal rights for citizens. These were political ideas Edward and others could get behind. Without hesitation, Edward signed up on the spot. Since party organizers knew the FBI was keeping an eye on communist efforts, they required new members to sign up with an alias. At the time, Edward didn't think anything of the rule. He enjoyed the over-the-top secrecy. He picked the rather obvious moniker of Michael Edward, which was a combination of his and his son's first names. 
Edward paid his 50-cent registration fee, and just like that, he was an official member of the Communist Party USA. What Edward didn't know was that this meeting was more than just a friendly gathering. The party was actively recruiting high-profile, powerful individuals to advance their work, and he was one of the biggest catches to date. Now that he was on their side, Edward could help create successful propaganda and draw equally big fish to the party. For the next few months, Edward was bounced from meeting to meeting as the party tried to figure out where best to use him. From his perspective, they were just trying to find a group of peers he could work with to make a difference. In the meantime, he received orders from the party that he was going to work with Adrian Scott on an upcoming film, with the goal of promoting communist ideals. This assignment surprised him. Adrian Scott had been the producer on four of Edward's previous films with RKO, all of which were extremely successful. Edward admired Scott's work with screenwriters and deft handling of production problems, as well as his willingness to respect others' expertise. However, after all that time, the two had no personal relationship. Edward had no idea Scott was a party member until the assignment. But now, he was delighted to have a friend in the party. Shortly after, Adrian and Edward received a mysterious note containing just a date, time, and meeting place to receive further instructions. Edward was excited. It felt good to be part of an elite secret community trying to better the world. He also knew that whoever was on the other side of the note must be one of the party's most sequestered members. He was curious if he'd recognize the person from the film industry. So, on the agreed-upon evening, Adrian and Edward drove up the sloping roads of Beverly Hills to a small, tidy home. Following their instructions, they rang the bell, waited a few minutes, knocked, then returned to their car to wait. Edward recalled a sense of excitement and nervousness as the minutes ticked on. However, no answer came and disappointment began to replace the anticipation. Then, just as they were about to pull out, someone answered the door. He was a butler, and he told them the meeting location had changed. It would be held at the home of Sidney Buckman, producer and Oscar-winning screenwriter. New address in hand, Edward and Adrian set off. They arrived at a larger, fancier home that was hosting a gathering of about 12 influential new party leaders. Buckman wasn't home, but Edward got over his disappointment as the meeting started. There were a variety of film professionals present, as well as a high-level female executive for a department store chain and someone with government connections. The hope was that this high-profile group could call attention to growing racial tensions in the country and highlight the need for equality. Everyone was eager to help and began coordinating immediately. But beneath the allure of change and equality, the more insidious pieces of the Communist Party's operation were already bubbling to the surface. The way the party ensured the success of their strategy was to demand absolute compliance from its members in the name of the greater good often to the point of controlling free thought. Edward's first small taste of this 
was when one day, in passing, he mentioned to Adrian that he was reading Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. Adrian grew strangely uncomfortable and tight-lipped. He told Edward to stop reading that book immediately. When Edward asked why, he was evasive, saying it was on the list of books party members weren't allowed to read. Communists believed the book contained coded anti-communist language they didn't want their party members ingesting. Edward didn't think much of it. He just decided to stop telling Adrian what he was reading. The banned book list was a bit odd, but he still believed in communist ideals and was happy to proceed with his assignment. Edward and Adrian were told to create an anti-fascist film with a communist writer. They had no problem with this, and Adrian pulled the necessary strings to get the designated screenwriter, John Wexley, assigned to the project. However, when the script, which was titled Cornered, came back, they had a problem. It was objectively terrible from a craft standpoint. It had long monologues, scenes with no action, and generally poor writing. Edward was an established director at this point, and Adrian was a producer with an excellent track record. They could not in good faith make something this bad and risk losing money for RKO, nor their own reputations as filmmakers. On top of that, the communist ideology was too transparent and too pedantic to make for good film or to reasonably slip through the censors. Always a professional, Adrian handled the situation like he would any writing problem. He paid Wexley and then hired a rewriter known for his apolitical, even-handed approach. This led to a polished script that kept its underlying anti-fascist ideology, but no identifiable or condemnable details. Adrian and Edward felt they had done a stellar job slipping in party ideals, but making a marketable and censor-passing film. Production continued as normal, and at some point in 1945, Adrian and Edward received a summons for a meeting regarding Wexley and the script. By now, the film was entirely shot and nearly done with editing. A summons at this stage in the game was fairly normal in the film industry. Edward assumed it was a simple credit dispute. He and Adrian figured they'd be able to resolve the issue in a matter of minutes. Instead, they walked into a meeting with four party members who weren't angry about credits so much as they were the communist content of Wexley's script had been thinned out. Their proposed solution was for Edward and Adrian to use their power at the studio to reinstate Wexley as the writer and restore the deleted scenes. Edward and Adrian were flabbergasted. Wexley's script had been untenable as it was written. Even if there had been a way to convince the studio to shoot such obviously bad writing, the film was already nearly locked. There was absolutely no way they could do reshoots now. Clearly, this wasn't what the party members wanted to hear. They felt Edward and Adrian were going rogue. To try to smooth things over, Edward invited the group to a follow-up meeting at his home, but their stance didn't change. Edward realized for the first time that they were expected to give up creative control and implement whatever the party wanted without question. It made him deeply unsettled. He was a creative first, 
and giving up autonomy was not an option, even if he agreed with the ideals of the organization. So neither man was heartbroken when Edward and Adrian were called into a third meeting where they were told, quote, For the time being, consider yourselves out of the party. When you decide you can accept party discipline, we'll explore the situation further. As far as Edward was concerned, all that party business was behind him, and he could go back to making his own films. He had no idea how wrong he was. In a moment, we'll take a look at how a little more than a year in the party became a nightmare that Edward couldn't escape. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Now back to the story. As far as Edward Dimitrik was concerned, 1945 was a great year. Several of his past few films had been met with huge critical and box office success. He'd been given A-list writers and actors to work with. He'd recently left the Communist Party and was enjoying the high life. On top of that, he'd met a new woman, Jean Porter, who he was wildly in love with. The two started dating while he dealt with the continued paperwork for his divorce from his first wife. Jean was smart and independent, an actress herself. She understood Edward's career and was much more involved in his life than his first wife, while also maintaining her own career. But while Edward had left the Communist Party, he still had a vested interest in equality. In that vein, he directed a film called Crossfire, which called out anti-Semitism and opened to huge success in 1947. He and Jean were still doing great, his son was with him, and his divorce was nearly over. Edward had just bought property with Jean in the L.A. area, and he began to realize that there was a good chance that in the next few years, they'd not only be successful, they'd be rich. In a moment of folly, Edward let his first wife have whatever she wanted in the divorce, including a huge portion of his assets and a promise for exorbitant alimony payments. But what did he care? The 38-year-old director would be making films for the next 30 years. For a boy who grew up in poverty, Edward's life was almost too good to be true. And it didn't last long. In September of 1947, over two years after they'd left the Communist Party, Edward Dimitrik and Adrian Scott were issued pink subpoena slips. They were going to have to appear before HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee in Washington, D.C. The House was investigating communism's infiltration into the entertainment industry. Almost immediately, the situation hit the papers, both men knew right away they'd need good legal representation, someone who could make sure this case ended quickly and smoothly. Adrian suggested Bartley Crum, who is known to be a longtime upstanding liberal. He had a history of taking on cases that had ethical implications for the nation as a whole. 
Edward, Adrian, and many other liberals at the time felt the persecution of suspected communists was a dangerous slope to censorship and segregation. Hopeful Crum would see it the same way, Edward and Adrian called his office. They'd not only been right about his stance, but he was already aware of the case and urged them to come to his office as soon as possible. They were on a plane the next day. In his memoir, Edward describes Crum as, quote, a small, trim, good-looking, and socially pleasant man with a liberal Republican attitude toward HUAC and its attempts to censor by intimidation. He was appalled. Crum took the case, and Edward and Adrian were euphoric. They had arguably the best lawyer in the country, and he genuinely cared about the case. They were going to be fine. But when Edward and Adrian arrived back in Hollywood that night, they found out that 17 other film professionals had received subpoenas and had all agreed to pool their resources to put up a united legal front. Edward suspected some of the subpoenaed members were not and never had been communists, and that a unified case centered around censorship was the best way to go for all of them. Crum thought the same, so they began attending group meetings with the other subpoenaed filmmakers for the remainder of September and into October. In mid-October 1947, the group flew to D.C. to begin the hearings. The papers were at the ready, with headlines like, Hollywood Accused, Red Issue Splits Film Industry. The hearings were to take place in the caucus room, which was the largest facility available. There were 90 seats reserved for the media, including radio broadcast and news cameras. Whatever happened would get back to Hollywood before Edward did. On the first day of the hearings, over 400 people lined up for hours to get seats or standing room in the chamber. Police had been set up ahead of time for crowd control. Edward began to get nervous, but the initial hearings went fine. By the end of the week, there were national protests in favor of the group that news outlets had begun calling the 19. Things were looking like they might turn out okay. Then, on October 27, 1947, the first unfriendly witness, that is, the first of the 19, was called to the stand, and things started getting bad very quickly. Each unfriendly witness was asked if he was or ever had been a member of the Communist Party. Nine answered, while ten refused. The Hollywood Ten, as the objectors came to be known, all rested on arguments of freedom of speech and tried to turn the case back on the committee. They argued that by censoring communist rhetoric in film, they were infringing upon the First Amendment, which was fundamentally un-American. The committee did not take well to this argument. The eyes of the world were watching, and they were committed to making one thing clear. They didn't care if these men got a fair trial. Their goal was to destroy communists at all costs. Still, Edward and the rest of the nine held out, hoping freedom of speech would prevail. It was un-American to hunt people for their beliefs, Surely the committee would see that. Their efforts were in vain. On October 30, 1947, the committee abruptly ended the hearings and issued an ominous closing speech. 
It is not necessary for the chair to emphasize the harm which the motion picture industry suffers from the presence within its ranks of known communists who do not have the best interest of the United States at heart. The industry should set about immediately to clear its own house and not wait for public opinion to force it to do so. Edward realized immediately that their strategy had the opposite effect of what he'd wanted. Rather than clearing his and his colleagues' names, the whole country was now convinced they were all communists. Edward and the nine other holdouts, the Hollywood Ten, were as good as traitors. A month later, on November 24, 1947, all of the Hollywood Ten were indicted for contempt of court and given a $1,000 fine worth about $11,500 today. The next day, the Motion Picture Association of America released the Waldorf Astoria Declaration, which explicitly said the industry would drop all of the 10 immediately with no compensation. They would not re-employ them until they declared under oath that they were not communists. Edward and the Ten, who had been some of the hottest and most established talent in Hollywood, were now unemployable. While some of the screenwriters were able to scrape work together by writing under pseudonyms for fractions of their previous pay, Edward was a director, and therefore entirely unable to do any work in secret. Earlier in the year, he had agreed to pay his ex-wife with money he no longer had. The bills were piling up, and he had no way to pay them. There were also crumbs mounting legal fees and the general cost of living in Hollywood. On top of that, the Waldorf Astoria Agreement and the ensuing fear across the film industry meant even suspected communists couldn't get work. The friends Edward did have were pulling away from him to preserve their own careers. Edward and the others held their breath as they pushed their appeal to the Supreme Court, hoping to get their indictments discarded on the grounds of freedom of speech. In the meantime, Edward married Jean and tried to carry on business as usual. But life wasn't usual. Edward's film Crossfire was nominated for an Academy Award in 1948, which should have made him one of the most desirable filmmakers in Hollywood. Instead, his contemporaries ran a smear campaign against him, saying he had sold out his friends and was a secret communist. It kept his film from winning the award and kept him from securing more directing jobs. He and Jean had to go to England to take the only directing work he could get. It was still hardly enough money for all the legal and divorce fees he'd racked up. Then, after two and a half years of waiting, on April 10, 1950, the Supreme Court refused to hear the Ten's appeal. Edward and the others were going to jail. Sentencing officially took place that June, and shortly after, Edward found himself sent to prison in West Virginia for the maximum sentence of one year. The Ten had been sent to various eastern U.S. prisons, possibly to make visits from Los Angeles contacts more difficult. This may have been smart. Edward was shocked to realize that his friend Albert Maltz still believed deeply in the party, to the point that he trusted no American media and believed that communism could still rise. Edward, on the other hand, was finally convinced that the party was, if not evil, 
no friend to him or the film industry. However, he also knew that speaking up against them would make him even more enemies. Edward credits that year with helping him find his resolve to testify against his fellow filmmakers. Hollywood was a land of connections. Even without the communist angle, it was bad business and bad friendship to do something that could hurt others. Still, it was his only chance at salvaging his career. Nearly four years after his original subpoena, on April 25, 1951, Edward reappeared before Congress and told them everything he knew. According to Edward, individuals like himself who had been brought into the Communist Party were just humanitarian citizens wanting a better world. It was only after joining that he realized party leadership had an insidious agenda. He testified that they had three main purposes in trying to infiltrate Hollywood, stating, the first one was to get money, the next one was to get prestige, and the third and most important was, through the infiltration and eventual takeover of Hollywood's guilds and unions to control the content of pictures. He had, of course, experienced that firsthand with the Wexley rewrite incident. The hearing was intense, and Edward was grilled for hours. He was afraid more than once that his gambit wouldn't work. But when the decision finally came, he nearly wept with joy. His name was legally cleared by Congress. He was not a communist and was officially taken off the blacklist. But reputation isn't that easily repaired. For the next few years, Edward received regular visits from the FBI. Terrified of ending up in trouble with the law again, he cooperated. This gained him no popularity with the communists. Neither did the interview that ran in the Saturday Evening Post in May of 1951, right after his hearing, where he affirmed his stance that the party was dangerous and misguided. Anonymous party members threatened to sue the magazine for libel and Edward feared retaliation. Yet of the Hollywood 10, he was the success story. Some of the others were never able to work in film again. Edward had to live with the fact that his actions directly led to the Waldorf Astoria blacklist, which destroyed dozens of careers. He hadn't just ruined his own life, he damaged the vitality of his industry and community. By the end of the 1950s, the war was long over and the Red Scare was dying down, but the consequences of anti-communist sentiments couldn't be undone. The precedent had been set for an age of censorship that would forever impact the climate of the American film industry. In the coming years, many productions were canceled because their content was deemed unpatriotic, risque, or communist in nature. Careers were ruined on suspicion of Soviet sympathies, especially as the nation moved into the Cold War. The ramifications of the Red Scare would reverberate through Hollywood for decades. Even today, actors and films are criticized for being political and opinionated, even though many would argue that, as artists, it is not only their job to opine on humanity, it is their moral obligation. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. 
Next week, we'll be back with more on the dark side of Hollywood. You can find all of ParCast shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time on The Dark Side. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Taylor Cleland and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.